Good morning. I'm your host, welcoming you to the December 5th, 2023 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, for the full hour, we are going to have an ambitious City of Irvine update with Brandilyn and Adam Cavecci. They are speaking to all of the, there's been a lot that's happened on the city council and it's a, you know, some of it's groundbreaking if only it could get adopted. So Brand is gonna be speaking in her capacity as a member of the Irvine Watchdog and Adam as a principal executive to Irvine City Council member Kathleen Traceder. On the municipal menu this morning will be, drumming roll, the failed single-use plastics ordinance, warehouse creep Irvine's lobbying rules we might I don't think we're going to get to the great parks uh, mix of uh, residential and retail I just don't because I want to open up all the other then we'll get into um, the civil servant exodus it's a real thing folks and the level of city commissioners training and I hope we do have time to talk about how the watchdogs particular calendar it's different because they've got their sights on the primary and the general elections that affect the city of Irvine. We'll be right back with this long table of this expansive buffet of topics. Don't go away. Welcome back. My guests for the full hour are Branda Lynn and Adam Cavetti. Glad to have them on. Branda will be speaking through her affiliation with the oversight of the nonprofit cadre of volunteers, Irvine Watchdog website that promotes transparency and accountability from our local government, tall order. Her professional life pursuits include paralegal work at several different legal Irvine law firms, and Brenda served as an Irvine Community Service Commissioner, Irvine Children, Youth Families Advisory Committee member, Organizer Families Forward, and is a board member of the National Women's Political Caucus, Orange County. She serves currently as City Council member Kathleen Traceder's Planning Commissioner. But I'm I'm not sure in which capacity because we've got another city employee that's also that's joining her. And so we have the pleasure of bringing with us along Adam Cavecci. He is the Supervising Principal Council Executive Assistant to Irvine Council member Kathleen Traceder. And in this role, Adam advises on a multitude of municipal public policy issues with a particular focus on environmental protection, transportation, and the labor movement. He's a product of an upbringing in Huntington Beach. He completed his Bachelor's of Arts in Legal Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. After graduating, Adam returned to participate in democratic politics in Orange County, serving as an organizer and later a consultant on more than a dozen campaigns over three election cycles throughout Southern California. Both Branda and Adam come to us live today from their offices in Irvine. Welcome, Adam Cavici, and welcome back, Branda Lynn, to Ask a Leader. Thank you so much for having us, Claudia. Yes, very excited to be here, Claudia. Thanks so much for having us. Well, thank you. We're And I'm going to just be keeping a very rapid tempo because of all the heady topics I hope that we get to cover. Let's begin with the failed 
single-use plastics ordinance. We could take the whole hour to cover that. It's, it was a proposed ban on bags, bottles, non-compostable single-use foodware, intentional release balloons. And that, folks, you can just imagine what that means, intentional releases. Like, we've got this bouquet, and we're going to, you know, commemorate, remember, announce, reveal, but in those big, big bundles of balloons. Seven years in the making... Irvine's drafted plastics ban would have been the most comprehensive municipal ban in the country, which explains the pervasive campaign by industry groups to flood the zone with a counter campaign. So staff, let's talk, Adam, about the staff having provided for this comprehensive ordinance that was presented at last Tuesday night's Irvine City Council meeting. Talk about this, the what's gone into it and for and how long it's actually, and was it, and who were maybe, shall we say, whose offices on the council were the ones that were most adamantly helping build this proposed ordinance? Absolutely. So just to kind of give a little bit of history on how this was developed, this was an item brought forth by our office um, in large part because the member that I work for, uh, Kathleen Traceder, who's a professor at UCI, um, she ran on environmental and sustainability issues. And one of the things that she actually kept hearing from a lot of young people, from a lot of students, is that they're very, very concerned about plastic waste and very concerned about uh, particularly single-use plastics. And so what our office decided to do was to draw up a memo back in July. And typically the operating procedure here at the city of Irvine is that an office will drop a memo that sort of broadly outlines what they want to ask staff to go do. The council then has an opportunity for an initial discussion um, to sort of get feedback and refine what the memo is saying. And then staff goes out and does the recommended actions um, and brings it back to council for uh, more discussion. Discussion. Um, and in this case, the what we sort of outlined in our memo was all of these different things that you're talking about that you mentioned. Um, so requiring stopping the use of plastic uh, single-use utensils for takeout, uh, banning the use of plastic bags um, for takeout and in grocery stores, instead requiring them to be paper the uh, banning of the sale of small water bottles, plastic water bottles, um, instead requiring them to be aluminum or cartons, a balloon ban, which was modeled on what the city of Laguna Beach has been doing, and then requirements for dine-in, where they would have to use basically metal forks, you know, ceramic plates, all those sort of things. And so what happened was back in July, the council advanced for nothing that city staff should go and take all of the actions that we laid out for them in the memo. Council member Carroll was absent during that vote. So everybody else voted in favor of it. City staff then spent the next six months doing extensive outreach to businesses. Um, if I recall off the top of my head, I believe it was 3,500 businesses that they reached out to here in the city of Irvine. They conducted surveys and were trying to communicate uh, what we were looking at doing and soliciting feedback. And they actually refined a couple of the proposed initiatives based on the feedback that they had gotten. They then wrote and presented a memo to council, and that was just this last week, um, on all of the different sort of aspects of it, uh, 
and presented it and left it open for council discussion. And had the council decided to move forward with it, there then would have been a long implementation period with uh, the next year basically being continued outreach. And then in 2025, a couple of the provisions would have gone into place, the plastic bags. Uh, and then in 2026, the rest of it would have come into place, the water bottles, the dine-in, uh, and the takeout requirements. So that's sort of, I guess, the history of the plastic ordinance. And I'm happy to answer any more questions you might have. Well, it. a couple of things that the most comprehensive was, so elements of this proposed ordinance have been adopted other places, but perhaps not all of these different elements are, are in one ordinance in any municipality. Is that is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. So every aspect uh, that we put in there has been done somewhere. So, for example, the plastic water bottles, Concord, Massachusetts has done that. The food and takeout where Berkeley has done that. Uh, the balloon ban, Laguna Beach has done that. But there isn't anywhere that city staff were able to identify or us that has done all of this all of these proposed actions sort of together. So it was supposed to be a really comprehensive look at um, how do we actually reduce plastic waste and kind of combine together all these other policies that have been working everywhere, uh, put them into a package so that Irvine can really be a leader in sustainability. And the point of contention at the dais last Tuesday night was the extent to which outreach had taken place. And I, I want you to sort of rebut a claim that was made of you, you said right now in this interview 3,500 businesses had been brought along it was characterized as a, a rather puny outreach but I'd like for you to sort of truth out that claim that was made on the dais I'm not going to name names but I will eventually <laughs> <laughs> yeah and so all I can say is what I'm going off of was from the staff report and I know that the sustainability team here at the city of Irvine we're very lucky to have very talented staff that have done a lot of outreach it's, it's not to say that it's perfect. Uh, I know what you're alluding to is that uh, Vice Mayor Kim had criticized some of the uh, non-English language outreach, which, you know, based on what she said, does sound at least a little bit fair enough. But they did do extensive outreach. The thing is, it's just not everybody's going to respond to your survey. Uh, not everybody's going to be pleased. And just having, you know, been through these sort of things a couple times, uh, industry groups that are looking to delay will always try and land on process is where they're right. going to criticize. Yes. Because eventually, you know, no matter how hard you're working, you're never going to reach everybody. There's always going to be somebody uh, that is, you know, going to feel left out. And it's really just a way to try and delay the policy uh, being enacted, which, again, I would point to the fact that there's going to be an entire another year of outreach after this was adopted, um, in addition to the outreach that they did just in the development. And really what this outreach was for was just trying to solicit feedback. Um, and then there was going to be even more robust outreach as we gave people time to run down their existing stock of plastic sort of so Adam and Branda, I want to flip this around is the outreach, I'm looking at it's year 2023. Plastics, single-use plastics have been around for like a couple of generations. It's not news this stuff is backing up. We have graphic, you know, <laughs> proof around the world of where these have been banking up in all everywhere and how these particles have become increasingly smaller and there were people that were giving testimony about the nanoparticles going through every possible bio barrier that exists on the planet so i in a way 
hasn't there been outreach in the form of publicity coverage of how devastating this backup of plastic products is all over the world isn't that the isn't that the news isn't that the outreach yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know, Brenda, you want to speak to it anymore, but what I'll say, you know, and I'll kind of take this in a, a broader point uh, as to some of the points that were made about being personal responsibility is that this is very, very highly publicized. Um, you know, at this point, everybody's heard about recycling campaigns. Everybody's heard about the issues that plastics are causing. So this is a new issue, as you point out. And so actually choosing to do something about that, I think it is important to talk to businesses and help them through the transition phase. But you are correct in that we've known about these issues. The public has been told about these issues. I think personally that the limits of individual behavior change have seriously been reached and that we need to be thinking about larger public policy changes in order to phase out a lot of this plastic waste because it ends up in the back bay, it ends up in the ocean, it damages wildlife habitats and is likely pretty bad for human health as well. So this is a serious issue that a lot of people are aware of and I do think that that needs to be taken into account in this whole discussion. If I may, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about our city's history of being an environmental leader. If you look back at Irvine having received a United Nations award for banning CSEs at a time where we were the first municipal ordinance to ban them, we led the way, not only um, countywide or statewide, um, but internationally. And we've stepped so far away. You know, I, was, I made a public comment regarding this item because, you know, we can't state or claim that we're going to be an environmental leader in Irvine with something like a plastics ordinance when we can't even adopt it as is, when we've taken languages, the, the language from other cities that have already implemented and successfully adopted these policies where they have small businesses that are thriving at the same time um, while implementing such plastic ban ordinances. Um, and so I just wanted to highlight the fact that, you know, there was a time when Irvine was an international leader even. And there were stakeholders that were opposed to the CFC ban. You can imagine, um, you, we're talking about lobbying efforts now with this plastics ordinance. There were more efforts back then because, you know, no one had done it before. It was a, a more shocking, um, more new idea. And yet Irvine still led the way. We were also the first municipal city to have recycling bins in Orange County. You know, how do we get back to that, especially when we have a Democratic majority on the city council? And something like this is, in my opinion, a no-brainer. You know, given the data, given the facts of what plastics do to our environment, and like you said, Claudia, this is not new information. This should not be groundbreaking or shocking or, or there should be such support given the makeup of our city council. And yet there was pushback. And again, some of the... Um, I guess, concerns were the rollout. You know, a lot of them were saying we're not ready. These um, certain perhaps AAPI uh, businesses weren't reached out to. But I want to emphasize this was not going to be implemented immediately. There was going to be a year of outreach, and the rollout would have taken place over time. So, you know, it, it's more about the direction the council wanted to go. And it was disappointing to me personally to see that this was watered down the way it was, given the years and the data and the information that's been out in the community that we know about that's where plastics do so much harm to our environment. 
And so I just wanted to point out the fact that Irvine, at a time when, you know, progressive um, environmental sustainability ideas were not popular, we were a leader then. And no one looks back now and says, oh, you know, the CSU den, that was a bad idea. Actually, it's the quite opposite. You know, it was what helped our ozone layer. It's what helped our environment. And no one looks back now, even though there were growing pains and even though businesses were impacted and perhaps not happy with the ban at the time, we look back and what's best for our earth. And so I just wanted to bring that up because it would, you know, given the makeup of our city council, it's really time to take action in terms of being an environmental leader again. So one thing that I thought was a really interesting point that council member Larry Agron brought up, he was the sponsor for the CFC ban. He acknowledged last Tuesday night at Irvine City Council meeting that the the kind of single-use plastic ban would, is actually a more complicated lift. It, it, it's, a, it's important to have happen, but it's, it's more complicated because of the CFCs were sort of in in particular refrigeration units that could be more, you know, immediately sort of addressed. But, yeah, there were headwinds then, but it's it's a different kind of headwind. And I'm just going to just put out, for those of you who just joined us, my guests are Branda Lynn and Adam Kometi, and they're talking about their roles in the city council as aides, uh, planning commissioner for Branda Lynn, and Adam is the supervising principal council executive to council member Kathleen Trusteeter. We're talking about the single-use plastics ban. So the uh, <laughs> the guns, the hired guns, were coming from the California Growers Association, the Dry Cleaners Association, California Restaurant Association, California Chamber of Commerce, California Retail Association, Coalition for Responsible Celebration, the local Chamber of Commerce groups, and American Beverage. And I even got, um, somebody shared with me their American Beverage text they got, and it fi- it showed up finally on my phone. So um, I guess I want to know your two's reactions to, there weren't really specific claims made about how this will affect the respective businesses that spoke against the proposed ordinance there. And the, the council wasn't asking for specific data. It was sort of like sweeping claims, just pushing back. We just don't want this. What what, what do you have to say to that? Adam, I don't know if you want to take this well, one. Absolutely. What, what I can say to the specific claims, you know, is that this political operation was clearly very sophisticated. Um, as a council member, you get lobbied a lot on a lot of different issues. And some groups have figured out how to send you spam intervals that, you know, every 10 minutes or so. This was a flood of emails and texts and calls. And we actually even heard reports that they were canvassing individuals. And we reached out to some of the people who had contacted the city about the ban. Adam, In excuse, terms me, of their, excuse me, Adam, canvassing yeah. by phone or door to door? Door to door. Oh, wow. Uh, we were told by somebody uh, that our office had managed to contact that a, a man had shown up to their front door and came and talked to him about the, the ban. So this was a pretty extensive effort. Like you said, a lot of the big guns came down from Sacramento um, and all over to talk against this. And some of the claims they were making were pretty slippery. So I think kind of the best example of the ways in which they tried to influence the public discourse is they said we were banning bottled water and that Mm -hmm. that would uh, negatively impact uh, in emergency situations. 
the reality is it was only plastic water bottles that were getting banned and small ones yes. specifically for sale. There a liter or smaller. Preventing. Yeah, a liter or smaller. That is correct. And it would have there would have been nothing preventing people from bringing in bottled water in an emergency. And you still could buy aluminum or boxed water, both of which are widely commercially available products. You can go into any 7-Eleven. Uh, you'll find a couple different brands of canned water. You know, this isn't it's not like we were outlawing bottled water. We were just outlawing specifically the medium plastic for small water bottles. And so a lot of people took that and were, you know, very freaked out by it. And similar, like you're saying to the comments about this will hurt businesses without actually explicating, you know, like the severity of it. It's not like there was some detailed letter that like went through, you know, oh, this will, you know, take X amount of dollars for my business and then I can't meet the lines. It's just kind of broadly asserted that just because some of the replacement products are a little bit more expensive that it would have killed businesses. And again, I just don't feel that those claims were ever particularly substantiated, but I think a lot of people hear that and obviously get very concerned. Um, and so that was a big part of why I think the pushback was successful in addition to the sophistication of the political pushback. Yes, Miranda. Oh, I wanted to add, actually Irvine Watchdog volunteers also were notified that there was a call made prior to the vote um, and if you picked up on the other line was former Irvine City Council member Anthony Quo, along with a clergyman who were telling people um, that, you know, banning water was evil, essentially. Um, and it was a live conversation where you couldn't speak, but where um, Anthony Quo, and, as well as this uh, reverend, I believe, were having a conversation encouraging everyone to um, oppose this ordinance. Yeah, there was a lot of clergy, that, and and there were social justice sort of co-opted groups that were claiming that this is going to just and, and and without the claim, without recognition that tap water is is safe, it's safer than non-regulated bottled water. I mean, there there was that. But I also wanted to find out if why on the council those even that are proponents of this proposed ban on single use plastics. Why wasn't there a suggestion that there were federal funds? Are there federal funds available to take away the problem of businesses with the, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act and any kind of, of program that could assist businesses so that this ordinance could get on going? So um, in my understanding and in staff's outreach, we hadn't particularly found um, any programs available to help smooth the transition. Uh, that's part of why the long implementation timeline was given, which was to give businesses enough time to run through their existing stock of plastics and to transition. What city staff were doing was they were uh, building a guide, basically, of alternative products where they could list out, uh, you know, sort of the different sellers and places where you could get the non-plastic products from, basically, to provide businesses an easier way to know uh, what else is out on the market and what else they can purchase. So the drawing board is still up, hoisted in the different council offices, I'm wondering. Tell us, Adam and Brando, what is the next move going to be with this ordinance? At least from our end, uh, what we're looking at doing is we're going to try and bring back as much of this as, as we possibly can. City staff were given direction to continue outreach 
um, and keep studying, bringing back on a couple of items. I know at least from our end, uh, we're going to take a serious look at some of the diamond requirements because that actually has been shown to save businesses money instead of giving out like products that are single use, requiring them to use you know, metal forks and things like that. So there's definitely some interest in bringing some of the individual components back, but it's ultimately going to be up to what the, the council wants to do. And they had asked, given city staff the broad direction to narrow the scope of the proposed ordinance, and they did not provide a date for it to be brought back. But I can just say that we have a strong interest in, you know, not giving up and trying to get as much of this passed as we can. Branda? Um, I have nothing to add. Adam is on the ground more at City Hall. Okay. Uh-huh. Okay. I wasn't sure if uh, you had some more to say there. Well, it was um, it was quite a remarkable thing. And I, I, I'm concerned that there was a dynamic there that um, on the dais that I'm, well, well, we'll bring it up when we're going to talk about some of the civil servant sorts of reactions uh, at at the council later. I think there's a relationship there in that dynamic. So I will put that aside and sort of a transition into Irvine's lobbying rules. There's lobbying and then there's campaign contributions. So Adam's already given a nod about how some of these big players in the plastics uh, trades and associations that you could sort of see them at work with the the ban with the the role that campaign contributions may have but so I but let's talk about what Irvine was trying to codify in September toward dealing with how lobbyists interact with the city council so where it, it was an effort and so let's talk about where that effort is at this point and where, where it's going to go adam did you want to start this off or yeah i can kind of kick off at least you know again kind of framing the issue so <laughs> just taking a look at uh, our office initiated this item as well and like I mentioned earlier, typically the, the way that you operate is you broadly outline what you want city staff to do. Council has a discussion about it. That's what happened back in September. We had proposed kind of a, a broader look at a couple of different things in addition to the lobbying ordinance. The biggest one being the establishment of an independent ethics commission that would have had the ability to investigate potential violations of the lobbying ordinance and of campaign finance issues. It was pretty clear from the discussion that that was going to be a non-starter with the rest of the council. So instead, the decision was made to just take a look at the lobbying rules and trying to tighten them up in light of some of what's been happening. So then what happened at the meeting last week was staff came back with those recommendations to see what the council was looking at. And then the next step after that is going to be them actually coming back to council in the new year with the proposed changes. So a lot of them were relatively technical. I would say that the biggest changes would be requiring more detail on the lobbyist reports that they're required to file because right now they're exceedingly vague. They can be as simple as like, I talked about the amphitheater with this person and that's all the detail that was required. 
and the other significant change that they were looking at is lowering the contribution threshold because of all of the cities that they studied, which included Los Angeles, Sacramento, San Diego. Irvine had the highest threshold, paying threshold for someone to be considered a lobbyist of $10,000 in the calendar quarter. For those other cities, it was somewhere between 1000 and um, the county of Orange has it at $500. San Diego Anaheim actually doesn't as well. even have Anaheim as well, you're correct, has Mm -hmm. a much lower threshold. And that's part of why Irvine only had seven registered lobbyists, while, uh, you know, even Anaheim had a significantly larger number. And I know the county has over 70. So that's kind of what city staff are looking at right now is trying to revise that and also trying to clarify what kind of communications count as as lobbying. So that's the current status. I remember when Live Nation was promoting the expansion of the amphitheater at the Great Park. And I remember there were there was one particular individual where the council members asked, are you a lobbyist? And that, that was like, that person didn't know whether they were a lobbyist or not. So this, would the, the ordinance contemplated sort of hold that person t- to a, a tighter label? Yeah, certainly that's uh, one of the things, one of the clarifications. We're still not entirely sure what happened in that situation, (laughs) but uh, informed speculation is that there was a success fee and that that was how they avoided triggering the lobbying ordinance, which was that they hadn't been paid but would be paid after uh, the lobbying goes through so as to avoid disclosures. Again, we're not certain that what's what happened, but that is informed speculation. And so part of the changes in the definition is clarifying that, uh, that it's when the actual lobbying takes place um, and also who is allowed to, uh, you know, establishing new categories of lobbyists as well so that you don't have somebody being so able to avoid public scrutiny while speaking in front of the council. Um, another proposed change that just occurred to me there is requiring someone to identify themselves as a lobbyist uh, while speaking uh, in front of the council. Which would be nice, you know? Yeah, yes, and there was a, um, they talked about this category of expenditure lobbyists, which we don't, I believe, have currently. And it's, you know, if you're buying advertising or doing acts to get other people to influence, um, influence the decision making, then you'd have to report that as well. And city staff, um, or actually our city attorney, uh, Jeff Melching, had presented a wonderful, very well-detailed uh, presentation, which is available on the city's website on, on the agenda as an attachment. But they outlined potential modifications to um, what lobbyists would need to report. And each one seemed very um, uh, reasonable and necessary, given what we've been seeing in Anaheim and given the concerns in the ongoing FBI investigation that's occurring in Irvine. So, you know, for instance, one was to require the time and date for each lobbying contract or, I'm sorry, contact, you know, whether it's a text message, email, or phone call. Some of the council members were concerned that this would be overbearing, this would discourage council members from or be afraid to even meet with a a lobbyist, but I think more transparency, the better. Um, Another requirement we could add was specificity as to what the proposal and what each proposal was about. Um, but one that I feel is really important because we know that this happens and, you know, for instance, we know that some of the applicants for decisions that are up for the council approval have made max contributions to either sitting council members or candidates. So the um, another potential modification was campaign contribution disclosures. And we they have them already um, in 
San Diego and Sacramento mm -hmm. and Anaheim. Mm -hmm. And I was told in San Francisco, actually, they have one of the tightest ones where if anybody speaks to a member of the city council five times regarding an, uh, a proposal, they would need to register themselves as a lobbyist. So, you know, we have examples all throughout the state where it's been tighter and um, they've strengthened this ordinance. And, you know, given all the development that's happening in the Great Park, that's probably one of the biggest public works projects, if not the biggest in the county or Southern California that's happening. Oh, and, at least. You know, we need to, at least. And we need to safeguard the transactions and the, you know, what, what's going to be happening there. Because a lot of, there are a lot of people that are going to want to get their hands in that pot. And how do we make sure we protect um, the development that happens there from undue influence? And something that seems so, you know, it's a no-brainer um, would be requiring a signature under oath. You know, we currently apparently don't require that from lobbyists or and making sure that, you know, all these records are public. They're apparently posted online, and I've, I haven't really taken a look yet, so I can't say, but um, one of the uh, uh, modifications that was mentioned by our city attorney was to designate um, all this information as public record. Um, so, you know, there's so many things we could do that just seem so necessary given what's been going on in our county and given the big public works projects that we have going on in our city, uh, why not make it safer and why not make it more transparent? And I'm just remembering when I've gone to California Coastal Commission meetings, and those those are those stakes are high too. They're comparably high as deciding what a public good like the Great Park decisions would be. That the California Coastal Commissioners before they begin any agenda item, they will go down the list. Each of the commissioners will say they had an ex parte conversation with. They'll name. You know, an activist, a business person, they go right down the list every time. And so is this, Adam, what would be captured? This would be something sort of comparable, a disclosure ex parte conversations? I don't actually think it's that robust um, in my understanding of what the city attorney has uh, explained to us, although that certainly is an, an interesting It's a model, idea. though, and it's a convention. Yeah. It's been adopted for decades, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, the, the requirements would be more. So Irvine has uh, a multi-part test on who counts as a lobbyist. Um, first, you have to be engaged in the act of lobbying, which is pretty explicitly defined as trying to provide influence on a municipal question. Then you have to be a lobbyist, which basically means you've either triggered the compensation threshold, uh, they're trying to change it up so that people that work for companies uh, in-house lobbyists or you're an expenditure lobbyist, that other category that Branda had mentioned. Uh -huh. um, and, and then the the last one sort of being then that you have to like file and uh, basically explain what you're doing. So I don't think that they're actually running through that option and what the proposed, but again, I hadn't heard about that and it's certainly very interesting. Uh, so thank you for bringing that up. Well, it just occurred to me while you two are teaching me things I need to know. For those of you who've just joined us here on Ask a Leader, my guests are Branda Lynn. She is Planning Commissioner for Kathleen Trusseter and Adam Kamechi. He's the Supervising Principal Counsel Executive to Kathleen Trusseter. Also, they're working with the same council. It's not. It's just the way it happened, folks. I'm not trying to uh, sort of, <laughs> you know... Uh, 
give her at, at this advantage but it's just but she was advancing some of these and so I and she's actually we know it's public record that Kathleen Traceder has been questioned by the FBI pertaining to individuals involved in the Anaheim Chamber of Commerce Stadium sort of I don't know what's the the umbrella term for all that but that whole corruption case and that um, some of those involved uh, have been interacting with Irvine City Council members so I guess that's a uh, Thank you, Anaheim, for giving us a chance to take it, take it to Irvine and and raise our uh, transparency game over here. Well, so we'll we'll be watching that, and that it's interesting. The thresholds at ten thousand before they can be considered that. So it's is the proposal to bring. Is there a specific sort of level, or those those are all being sort of negotiated? Different those elements, including that amount that that the threshold before you're considered a lobbyist. So my understanding of the discussion that happened with the council is that uh, people were open to lowering it, but no specific okay. number had been reached. A work so in progress. Staff is gonna, yeah, they're going to bring, bring back uh, a final proposal in the new year, and that will have a, a different number in there. So it's actually, it's a pretty kind of a seamless transition from the stake, the stakes, the lobbyist kind of institution, to look at what has been happening off of everybody's radar mine included there has been quite the mass exodus of civil servants it's underway i don't know where we are along on the timeline but i would like for branda to explain what is going on and what are the factors because i we see some very public sort of um chastising going on from the dais to presenters of you know, by staff but I there's I'd like to know why are people leaving the extent to people that are leaving and what's the timeline what we're losing a lot of institutional knowledge ladies and gentlemen residents of Irvine um, yes yeah, so this came to my attention um, you know being on the Planning Commission we, we lost our director um, who has been with the city for decades uh, we lost inspectors, we've lost um, staff, our housing director, and apparently it's been happening in all the different departments. And what came to light was there was, I believe, over 60 staff, city staffers wow. who um, have left Irvine City Hall, I guess, in the last two months, I would say. They accepted a severance package that was offered. Uh, it was a six-month severance package, and so a lot of staffers have left. And in the meantime, we are get hiring new staff to take over. And, you know, we need to, we on the commission as well as the city council need to understand and be a little patient with those who are being onboarded. You know, some of them, I believe um, the individual who, the staffer who presented the plastics ordinance, you can correct me if I'm wrong, Adam, it was her first meeting where she presented to the council for the first time. So, you know, it, it, it's, it, you're in the hot seat when you're when you're presenting to city council. You don't know which direction they're going to go, what they're going to ask you. So we do need um, some patience with the new staffers. Um, but yeah, it is a it is a bit of a concern given a lot of higher uh, ups, the directors perhaps that have left. I, I know the city is actively looking for um, replacements, and you know while they're paying for you know the severance packages for 60 staffers for the next six months we're still having to hire and replace and get new staff so you know concerns over the budget concerns over you know how are we 
going to pay for all this in addition to all the public works projects we have in the in the queue um you know with the all-american asphalt plant and gateway coming all the projects in the and the great park with the amphitheater and the library and the you know pond and or the lake um there there's so many projects happening in irvine at the same time and i guess in terms of spending existing what has happened in other cities recently for instance huntington beach um you know they went from being a top tier financially sound city and now they're in you know they're in the yellow tier based on an orange county register article that i saw um, we know Westminster went bankrupt and, you know, I don't really want to go in. I don't know the details into what led to all that, but, you know, it's important that we keep watch over our city's budget, given the size, given the fact that we're growing, you know, for me, I'd love to see our reserve grow because there are more, um, there's more maintenance in our city. There are more residents and families that we need to serve and, um, we need a bigger rainy day reserve so these are just some things, you know, that are noteworthy. I think we need to pay attention to and keep watch of. Um, it's not, you know, a topic that politicians per se like to bring up. It's not something that you can win a campaign on necessarily. But I think it's important. Um, Irvine is not invincible. We can become financially vulnerable. And given the size of all the projects that we have concurrently happening throughout the city um, and what's happening at City Hall, you know, it all adds up. And so I think it's important to just kind of keep watch. We don't know what this means for the city, where we're headed, even. That was alarming to me. And, you know, given that we're growing, given that our population is increasing and we have more roads and parks. So um, that's just something that um, I wanted to note. Well, Adam, Branda is highlighting the fiscal part, but I'm I'm pretty nervous about institutional knowledge leaving too. Though I mean, the, both with both of those, it's pretty uh, it's a pretty serious situation we're facing. Yeah, if I could just you know, and I'm not sure how much to uh, I, I should explain on some of the staff leaving, but a lot of what happened was that was part of the city was transitioning back to all in-person work Uh from a hybrid remote period. So the reason that the compensation package was offered is it was a one-time only deal for people that did not want to return to uh, in the office full-time work. So that was a big part of the reason behind why so many people left all at once is that uh, city staff had felt it was important for the institution itself that you know serves a lot of people to have people be reachable and on site during the um, sort of work days when people might be reaching out for city services. So, so that's a big part of that, but it, it absolutely is something you know that we need to be looking at and make sure that we're continuing to make good hires. And Brenda was right. Uh, that was Janelle, who's the new uh, sustainability manager's first meeting. And I think she's done some really great work on this ordinance and has been nothing but a pleasure to work with. But it definitely is a period of transition here for the city of Irvine, especially as it is ramping up in size, as, as Brenda is pointing out. Okay. Well, thank you. And tacking onto that topic is the matter of the city commissioners training apparently in earlier years there was a in Irvine at least a commitment to giving very vigorous training to the commissioners appointed there's the finance of planning there's all these commissions but the training is also dropping off so what what is the um what's what do we need to know about that trend how bad is it 
Well, I, I mean, since I've been on, I was first appointed to the Community Service Commission in 2018. And um, it was not something I was aware of because I was new. I came to the city. Um, I was onboarded. But in terms of ongoing um, learning and training and having a budget to fund commissioners to go to these conferences, and um, that's, you know, especially led by the League of Cities, they do one every year for the various commissions, for instance. Um, there, when I, I came to re- find out that there is no more budget, and years ago, I don't know how you're, I don't know when the, when it changed, when they got rid of the funding for the commissioners, but years ago, the city of Irvine did have an allotted budget for commissioner training. And when they were onboarded, they were given more information about you know, what are the parameters with, with, within which commissioners can work, um, you know, what's under the commissioner purview and all that. Um, now, you know, when I was onboarded, there, it was just very minimal. We were given a binder, and I had to request funding to attend one of the conferences um, held by the League of Cities. So I, knew, I know I'll, at least on the planning commission, I, have, I asked our director um, if it would be possible to set aside um, funds to have commissioners go because I went to one last year in Long Beach and it was a wealth of information mm-hmm. uh, sure. to meet planning commissioners from up and down the state and convenient for us it was located in Long Beach so we didn't need to you know reserve a hotel we could just drive there in the morning come back um, or no I'm sorry it's going to be in Long Beach the next time but it was in Garden Grove last year and I was able to attend alongside Commissioner uh, Marianne Guido, and we attended, and mm. you learned so much about, you know, the broader um, role of a commissioner, as well as the specifics in terms of um, decisions that are made based on, you know, different land uses, for instance. And so I found it highly valuable. And so it's just something um, I would, you know, it would be great if our commissioners were given the support and the funding. And I believe if each commissioner does go back to their director and ask for the funding, they, you know, they, they hopefully they will provide it. If not, you know, I had to go to council member Kathleen Traceder and she was able to find um, money within her budget to help fund my uh, attendance at the League of Cities conference. So, yeah, but I wouldn't say it's a, it's you know these positions, these appointed positions. A lot of times, it's really up to each commissioner. Um, you know, we're not given perhaps the the most um, robust training. But if it's something you're passionate about, there are plenty of resources at the city. City staff are wonderful. They work so hard and they're so knowledgeable. And you know, they're always there to help answer questions or provide the information you need. You can always go to your council member um, who appointed you. And there's a lot of resources, but it does take initiative and it does take a personal conviction to do so. So, but yeah, I wouldn't say it's something alarming, perhaps, I mean, you know, over time, for instance, this is minor, but each of the commissions used to be given meals before the meetings because sometimes they can go long. Well, now it's just the planning commission that gets dinners before the meetings. And, um, you know, I think over time they just took away you know, some of the budgets and the conveniences that were given to the commissioners. And, um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's something that's really, though, at the end of the day, something that can be worked around by each commissioner. But, you know, I think given the, the weight of some of the decisions that are made on the commission level, it would be great if the city's budget did account for that. So, Randa, not to broadside you, but I hope you can give us an insight. What's an average number of hours per week you as a planning commissioner puts in? And, you know, that really depends on what's on the agenda, depends on how many members of the community I want to meet with. Um, usually the applicant 
for each of the items. We'll want to reach out to each of the commissioners to meet with them and go over any questions you may have. So it really depends on what's on the agenda. Um, for instance, this Thursday's planning commission agenda is rather um, weighty. Uh, there's a lot on it. And one of the biggest, most perhaps contested items is uh, the approval of 684 homes in the Great Park neighborhood. You know, for background, the city council years ago had entitled and given approval to Five Point to build 10,556 homes total. And they are at about 8,000 homes now. So they still have 2,000 plus to build. Um, and a lot of residents are, are not aware of that, right? So right. Each, um, each planning area that they are done, you know, kind of planning and it comes before the planning commission, you, we get a lot of pushback, a lot of no more homes in the Great Park, you know, traffic's an issue, our schools aren't impacted. Um, and a lot of times it's just, you know, or for instance, there was a letter that was sent unanimously signed by the Great Park Task Force recently I'm concerned about the pools being impacted. You know, we got to wrap this a little bit. This topic because I, I, we're going to have to close soon. But I, I'm sorry to, to erase you. I just was just oh, no, curious, no, no. Brenda, about you know, so people have an idea when we're talking about certain amenities, certain kind of support for a a very generous commissioner. How many of the I mean, just like a range? I don't know it could be a lot of hours. It could be like lots and thousands of hours a week, or you know, um, not. Uh, I mean hundreds of hours in a week, perhaps. So, um, but I just want to give you to a last chance to crack, um, we could crack at the the warehouse creep is what I'm calling it. The We've got a trending here in Irvine where there's, I guess there's, they're a special permit. They're not, it's not the land use designation. And these are, now it's an uptick in the kinds of, of land use, the warehouses in Irvine with larger buildings, larger vehicles that are being used to to move in and out of there. So I'd like for us to make that last little uh, topic be what is happening with warehouses that are being approved for development in, and what does that mean about the market here and the people that are getting uh, the council members that if there's if if the warehousing entities have the kind of capital to buy in this expensive land market that they they have a lot of capital to make sure the council members support their agenda that right might. so the planning commission in 2022 they saw more applications coming in in the last two years in, in our city we've had more applications come in for warehouse and distribution facilities and so it alarmed the planning commission and alarmed staff the staff brought forward an item, a warehouse ordinance that would have limited um, where and what size and what kinds of warehouses could be approved in our, our city, in which planning areas. Um, given the fact that we have a re RENA requirement in our city and that we're planning for, you know, approximately 24,000 more homes, um, and we're looking at putting the density in the IBC as well as the spectrum, and we want these neighborhoods to be walkable, the combination of large warehouses with semi-trucks driving alongside neighborhoods, it, those are two land uses that are not compatible. And, I, you know, I'm, this is an item that came before the city council. It did not pass three to two. Um, the two that were concerned and did want this ordinance passed were um, council members uh, Kathleen Traceder and Larry Agron. And... Um, you know, just given the fact that with Amazon purchases and everyone wants their, you know, delivery is overnight now, they need more facilities um, and they're looking at Irvine. And every planning commission meeting agenda now, we have warehouses that are coming in that are up for approval. Um, and 
you know, it's a concern of mine because ultimately, we just for sustainability efforts and for the environment, we'd love to have more walkable, bikeable neighborhoods. And when we're planning for these and the density in certain areas, like the spectrum in the IBC, we can't have these. We can't have warehouses and distribution centers for various reasons: the pollution, the size of the trucks, and the wide roads that, or you know, the turn, exceptions that they would need to get their trucks in and out. Um, the light pollution, often the emissions based on what's in the warehouses. So you know, there are a lot of concerns, and it was brought before the council. Um, by staff and the planning commission, and yet it did not pass. And my concern is for the landscape of our city into the future, going into the future, what is this going to look like? What do we want Irvine and our walkable neighborhoods to look like? And how is this going to work? So um, it's just something um, I wanted to know what I wrote an article on and I'll be following up on. And hopefully we can get, you know, I mean, it can be brought, brought back to the city council at any time, but we just, there, there aren't the votes, so it doesn't make sense to do it now. Um, perhaps one of the council members, if they come around and see the importance of this and the need for this, um, as the planning commission as well as staff did, um, it can definitely be brought back and passed. And um, and it's you know for warehouses that are over uh, what is it, 100,000 square feet only. So anything smaller would they would would not need to go through um, the planning commission approval. So we need um, to we're we're going to keep an eye on this collision course of the livable communities with this uh, uptick of the warehouse creep. I want to thank both of you. We do have to wrap right now. I want to thank you both for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you so much. Adam, so much fun. And Adam, Adam is uh, Adam. Are you there? We still we, yes. You thank, haven't had thank a peek. You so Did you? Much. One last word, just a, a phrase about the the warehouse trend, and then we got to wrap. All right, just yeah, really just quick. quick. Just, uh, to piggyback on what Brenda already said, I think that's all very important. And having done a lot of political work in the Inland Empire, it's just not a compatible use between residential. You don't want to be creating environmental right. justice communities right in the middle of Irvine because there's a line of trucks that are all emitting a ton of fumes right next to people's homes. I wanted, so it's, yes, it's a th- very serious issue, and it definitely merits further consideration. Thank you for that. I wanted to make sure we heard from Adam on that, too. Thank you both for being on the show today. My guests were Branda Lynn. She's the planning commissioner for city council member Kathleen Traceder and Adam Cavecci, the uh, supervising principal council executive for uh, Kathleen Traceder as well. Well, that's my wrap next week. My guests are going to include American Ballet Theater's artistic director, Susan Jaffe, whose company is bringing the Nutcracker back to Sagerstrom Hall this holiday. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening.